Welcome to my podcast, You Are Here For Now, a series of conversations inspired by my new book of the same name. I'm your host, artist and author Adam J. Kurtz. Each week on this show, I'll chat with some of the smartest, kindest, most generous, beautiful, amazing, talented people I know, and ask them about all of that being alive stuff that we don't always get to talk about, like passion, purpose, mortality, true love, defining success, mental illness, and figuring out what's next when you don't really know what you're doing. These conversations have already helped me so much, and I can't wait to share them with you. In this episode, I'm chatting with writers Alexander Chi, John Paul Brammer, and Mitchell Kuga about queer culture and family dynamics, finding your voice, and giving advice as a concept. Alexander Chi is the best-selling author of two novels, and most recently the essay collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. He is a contributing editor to The New Republic, editor-at-large at VQR, and an associate professor of creative writing and English at Dartmouth. John Paul Brammer is a columnist, author, and illustrator based in Brooklyn, who runs a popular advice column, Ola Poppy, and recently published a memoir of the same name. Mitchell Kuga is a journalist from Honolulu, Hawaii, whose work has appeared in The Village Voice, Esquire, T Magazine, GQ, Vice, Garage, Billboard, Out Magazine, and many more outlets. He also happens to be my husband. Alex, John Paul, and Mitchell, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hello. Hola. Hi. Um, I was excited to bring us all together because I feel like we're all a little bit advicey here. I mean, John Paul, you literally have written an advice column. Alex, you're uh, an educator um, and write extensively on the subject of writing. And I have just released this new book that's not not advice. And I'm just wondering, you know, where I'm wondering where it stops. Like, do people look to you for advice in your personal life? Are people like, oh, you're the guy who does the thing? So. Here's a completely unrelated question, but can you tell me the answers? Um, and if so, are there ever moments where you just want to be like, yeah, no, I, I wrote the book. Here it is. Or like, here's the link. Like, I can't, I actually can't do this right now. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that's actually why I wrote a lot of the essays in my first essay collection. They started out as blog posts uh, because students would ask me the same questions over and over again. Like, should I get an MFA? Um, for example, the MFA essay in that, in that collection is, is pretty much drawn from, uh, a couple of blog posts that I wrote on that question so that I could just send that link to the students and, um, or how did you get your start as a writer or what kind of jobs did you work or, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, uh, so yes, I try to, otherwise you just, uh, you start to feel like a caricature of yourself. Um, and that's, I think that's really, that's really bad. One kind of dirty trick about running Ola Poppy for me and generally giving advice is that all the advice I give is so much a composition. It is something that I purposely went about making with a voice in mind with a certain reaction in mind. And so to me, I'm less giving advice and more writing something pretty or writing something interesting or teasing out certain ideas that I have in my own head. Um, because, you know, with Ola Poppy, I don't do the whole like break up with him, sis kind of stuff usually, which would be really fun if I dip my toes into it. But I'm just, I'm way too, 
anxiety ridden to give that kind of advice. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if he actually breaks up with them and it's the wrong decision? Because I don't know. Um, so everything I write, advice wise, feels more like a an elaborate journal entry for me um, than actually giving advice because it's so abstracted. It's not like I am writing a letter to this singular person and hoping that it fixes their life. I am creating something that will exist as a public kind of work for other people to look at and enjoy. So it, it's very different from actually telling a friend, here's what I think you should do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and maybe when I said, I, I think when I said advice C, that was me hinting at this, but I think you're right. It's such an important distinction because First of all, most people don't even respond well to being told what to do. Right. And then also, yeah, you just can't ever know the answer. Um, something I did in in this new book is like, there's several pages that are just like, advice is subjective. You know, I, I all but wrote like, this is a bad book. Don't buy it. Don't <laughs> trust me. I'm garbage. You know, it's like, we came real close to that. And there's a whole sequence of like, I'm just trying my best. You know, I this is what I would do. This is how I would navigate this situation. This is how I'm saving myself or helping myself or hurting myself. And so you can decide to either do or not do these things. And I think, yeah, it's really, it is really important, but I do, do you feel like, I mean, I kind of look to you guys like this. Like I think of you as, as both people who like really have it together. And so part of me secretly wants you to tell me like, is there, is there a secret sauce? Like, can I have it? Like, can you just whisper it in my ear? Like, what is it? (laughs) Are you asking that? (laughs) kind of yeah sorry this podcast is actually i'm just can i please have the answers if anyone knows them no i'm uh you know it's interesting for me to think about it but this question because i i think you can get really invested in being the advice person and you can get kind of addicted to uh that role and the way that you can get self-esteem uh, from it, uh, which isn't the same as like focusing on your own stuff and doing the stuff that you need to do. And, and so now this year I'm, I'm doing my first full sabbatical year where for a year I will not be teaching. And I've been thinking a lot about like, what are the questions I need answered? How do I find mentors now for this next phase of my existence? How do I kind of let go of needing to feel like on top of it, guy with answers and like, I think that's also like a very male thing as well that you can fall into no matter how far you think you've queered your identity and gender, you can get roped back into male answer syndrome as well, where you're just making shit up because you think you need to sound like an authority. So people have gotten into this thing where they want to invite me onto their like live show or broadcast. And they're like, and guess what? We have five listeners who now will present their problem to you and you can answer. And I have never screwed up more in my life than in those situations. I have given such heinous advice because I sort of freeze up. (laughs) Uh, I mean, like I got this one question. I'm just sitting here thinking I'm going to talk about my book. And this one guy is like, Hey JP, um, I'm 70 plus year old. A lot of my friends died during the HIV AIDS crisis in New York City. I want a sexual partner, but I don't think anyone wants me. What do I do? And I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, it's just a completely separate energy from actually sitting down and being like, okay, I'm going to write out this carefully thought out response. Um, so all that is to say, like, I, I've never met 
a person who was necessarily healthy or completely all there or who actually had all the answers. I think that we're all just good at different things and we can all apply ourselves in different ways. Um, and there are certain specific circumstances where I feel like I have a lot to give and certain circumstances where I simply don't. And to kind of go back to Alex's point, it's it's like you got to avoid the idea that you are the person with all the answers and that, you know, whatever problem comes your way, you actually would be able to fix it. You're the guy with all the wisdom and all the knowledge to solve it. Um, in fact, my book is actually all about me not answering a letter. Um, so I'm kind of interested in that. And I think it's just how we work as humans. We're not all going to have um, the right answers all the time. Alex, that's a really good point about being addicted to advice giving and something I definitely related to as a younger person. I actually like bought a tarot deck in the seventh grade. So people would come to me with their problems and I could like flip some cards and tell them what they should do. I'd be like, break up with him, break up with him. It was always break up with him. Um, but I feel like as I get older, it's like, I don't know, it's still valuable sometimes. Like, I, I honestly don't know. I feel like that's underrated as a sentence. Um, and I think John Paul, something that's really valuable about your work is I feel like you're often just taking people's questions or inquiries and then kind of shifting it a little bit and then throwing it back at them and letting them see it in a different way without actually telling them what they should do, which I think is really valuable. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think a lot of interesting advice is just an act of translation. I think a lot of us are just reaching for the right language that will help us contain the problem or put it in a different light so that we can see things differently. Um, and I think that's what I'm after more often. I'm interested in people looking at something with different language or through a different lens and letting them find different or new answers on their own in that way. Because for me, the most fruitful moments in my life have come from like taking the familiar things that I thought were true and looking at them in a different way and not necessarily finding the finite answer from that, but just appreciating all the different ways you can approach any given subject, any given problem. I think that that has a lot more to hold and give for us than, you know, someone pretending like they know the answer. I was going to say, I have some advice to give you, Mitchell, which is... <laughs> Um, you should absolutely write a TV show or movie about a kid in the seventh grade, like yourself, who buys tarot deck. Oh my God, yes. To get his because I would absolutely 100% watch slash buy the hell out of that. Um, and that's also kind of something that I that I I think I do do pretty well, which is sort of draw a line around something uh, in a particular minute in a way that people don't expect, and that's probably like my favorite kind of advice to give because it feels very easy and there's no pressure. You can just be like, Oh, I don't actually want to do that. Or wow, maybe I will do that. <laughs> I can't imagine Mitchell giving advice to his childhood friends, knowing Mitchell so well, and also <laughs> knowing all his childhood friends. I just, it was bad advice. That's what I'm trying to say. It was not <laughs> yeah. No shit. <laughs> yeah. 50% of Mitchell's advice is just like, stop doing that. And to be fair, he's often right when it comes to say. me. <laughs> um, that, that sounds like it's pretty serviceable in a lot of situations. Um, Adam, you have a long standing planner that you produce called unsolicited advice that comes out every year. Um, what was the thinking behind naming it that? 
I mean, I, I just think that this unsolicited advice and really it's, it's a planner that nags you all year. And I, when I was dissecting like what love from a Jewish person is, I think I realized it's a lot of like preemptive worrying and trying to prevent disaster scenarios that don't exist and, and doing a lot of like stuff that the other person didn't ask for. (laughs) And I've had to unlearn that as useful because it's often not useful. Um, but I, I made that planner so that I could put it all in there. And then there's sort of like an opt-in process where if it works for you, maybe you're going to come back to this planner year after year. And there are, you know, quite a few people for whom that is extremely useful uh, in the small ways that they let it into their life. But then, you know, <laughs> Mitchell, we've been married for a long time. We've known each other for nine years. Like very often I'm just being f- annoying or I'm saying something to you that, that really I'm saying to myself. And I think that's often also what advice is, is we are saying, you know, all we can ever offer is, is our own perspective. And at least in my case, more often than not, I'm saying something out loud that I should really be internalizing um, and maybe practice holding a thought inside my head and, and not uh, immediately expelling it. You know, that's something else I, I could continue to work on. How are you going to build a brand off words you don't say, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of being a brand. <laughs> I, I'm so, so tired of it. Nothing makes you hate yourself more than commodifying your entire, entire identity and then performing it for a decade. Yeah, there's nothing more devastating than to be called a brand. <laughs> it's just like, oh. I, since day one, you know, when you, when you register your name as a trademark... Uh-huh. You've hit the point of no return, and I'm I'm at that point. It's but game over. I I've been doing a lot of work to separate myself, the brand, from myself, the person, and I think you know my my life with Mitchell is a really big part of that because Mitchell brings such a a hugely different perspective and such a different inner monologue than my own, and you know shares it with me. Uh, so so frequently, I don't know. It's it's a really special dynamic to have. I, rem- I remember during uh, COVID, I was joking that I was going to practice having a private life. <laughs> um, and a lot, sometimes uh, the advice I have for myself comes through in the jokes that I make during a particular period. So like, you know, one of the jokes that I was making in like 2019 and 2020 was like, have a secret, just like, Keep a secret. Don't don't share everything. Not everything has to like be told, you know. Like, um, uh, and I've and I've started, especially during COVID, to really like think about like why do I share stuff? What what do I think is going to happen when I share it? Uh, and social media certainly has been bad for my advice addiction, where like you know I've caught myself in the past years, you know, like sort of looking. Uh, at questions people are asking online and being like, do I have an answer for that? And and then thinking like, no, Alex, just don't answer that. You don't actually have to offer that person any advice right now. Like you don't have to respond to it. You don't have to correct them. You don't have to do anything. Just like go back to yourself, return to yourself. Something I do a lot of now is I write a tweet and then I look at it and I just say, nobody f- and I just I just delete it and so it's like short form journaling into nowhere and I just have that voice that's like 
not a soul has asked for this. You don't need four tweets about the queer bank that that launched. Like, oh my god, just, you can have one. I know, and like the low hanging fruit always looks so juicy. <laughs> it's just like wow, I could really make the tweet that um, humiliates this brand into not existing anymore, but I shan't. It's not worth it. And also, it's probably not the case that you're about to say the wittiest thing that's ever been conceived of, um, roasting the queer bank. It's a hard reality for a lot of us to confront, especially me. But there it is. <laughs> I actually thought you would say the funniest thing, though. That is the- <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, we were having this argument um, around the dinner table. We were rehashing that queer joy um, debate that was going on on Twitter. People arguing back and forth about whether or not we need more queer joy in stories or not. Now it's like, more queer joy is how you end up with queer banking, so we need more queer suffering, actually. And I stand by that. (laughs) We need queer overdraft fees. (laughs) It's a straight line to queer fracking, so know that. We already have queer fracking. She's she's one of our most notable figures. Exactly. Representation matters. And sometimes, like, finding your writer voice can feel, like, performative and not in a bad way. It can feel like, for me anyway, when I'm writing Ola Poppy and I step into the character of Poppy, I do feel like an entirely different person. I think that that voice is more confident, it's funnier, it's more interesting. Um, and so there are aspects to it that it's like, yes, um, you know, it's a product and I am trying to peddle it in a way, but that voice does feel pretty distinct from all that mess. It feels so fun. It feels like being an actor in a way or doing a performance. Um, So it really is a fine line. I think that, you know, not everything that we do as writers um, or people who write or people who get our stuff in magazines or people who have bylines, not all of it is just like us trying to accrue even more bylines or trying to get our book out or whatever. A lot of it is just that natural inclination of like finding a version of ourselves on paper that makes everything feel like you're flying, that makes it feel like everything's a little bit easier, more interesting. Um, and sometimes it's hard to parse those things out in the world we're in right now because sometimes I'm like, am I a marketer or am I an artist? Am I something in between? Um, and I think that's kind of a fruitful conversation to have with yourself every once in a while, just to check where you're at. John Paul, when I interviewed you for uh, the Creative Independent, mm-hmm. I think you compared finding your voice to drag, mm-hmm. which I thought was a perfect way of putting it. It's a performance and sometimes it doesn't feel completely right, but it's still you. And sometimes it feels more right. And you just mm-hmm. keep trying on different things until you find the thing that feels the most um you yeah and it's it's interesting too because i think um online the word performative is a shorthand for something that's embarrassing or bad or has negative intentions but i mean we're all kind of performing all the time because the truth is we don't know the full honest truth of ourselves at all times like we're often confused by who we are we often are unsure what our emotions are, what we're good at, what we're bad at, what kind of personality we have. I mean, that's why people are so obsessed with astrology all the time, I think, is because it's like, please, someone give me a compass to let me know who I am. Um, and writing is such a way to take a part of who you are and make blow it up into the whole sum of who you are. And it can feel really nice for just a little while to be like, yes, I know myself. Yes, this is a character I'm inhabiting right now. And you don't have to worry or question about the rest for just a little bit. Um, I think that's what makes it so 
addicting at times. We could stay on this topic forever. Like John Paul, you and I could do an entire hour about like artist versus marketer in particular. I think you navigate it so well. And then also your visual art, like you are really uh, a multi-hyphenate in the truest way. But I kind of want to pivot us on this on this pod to talking about um, queer life and like early 20s into a, versus adulthood. And mm. I think, you know, this book, this book isn't specifically geared towards young people, but it's also not not geared towards young people. Yeah. And I think I would love to do basically like the it, the it gets better segment of this episode, because I think that um, to an extent, all of us are people that that younger queer people um, look to as examples of like how to be a queer person who has a creative and fulfilling life that isn't, that, that doesn't necessarily hinge on like um, being like a, a hot YouTuber, you know, <laughs> it's like, there are many different, there are many different ways to model a, a creative queer lifestyle. And some of the most visible ones are also the least attainable. Right. Um, I love seeing like queer weirdo artists uh, thrive across different mediums because I think it's such a counter to this like YouTuber or TikToker thing that feels like oh the only way to be gay is to be like two you know blonde hair blue eyed um, young gays in love monetizing their relationship for like Bombas brand socks or the gay credit card or whatever <laughs> Um, hot take, if you don't have the gay credit card, you are not gay. We all get one. And if you did not receive yours, then I'm so sorry. But you have to leave. <laughs> That's kind of a lot of, like, gay pop culture. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember being a teen, and there was the, the gay guy from American Idol named... I can't Clay remember his Aiken? name. And I bought... No, no, there was someone who was out an out gay person who put out an album where they, he was a nerd, but they tried to sex him up. They like unbuttoned a few buttons and I bought the CD at like borders or something. And it's awful and not even like fun, awful. It's just bad. But as a teen, I was like, this is gay. This is me. And it's sometimes it breaks my heart when I see all the versions of representation that exist now. And I'm so sad for my teen self that I didn't have it. And then I'm just so happy that everyone else has it. And yeah, I wonder how you all feel about that. Or is that something you maybe don't think about because you're completely well-adjusted and just doing great? A friend of mine wrote to me recently and asked me for like recommendations for his gay teen son. Like, what would I recommend that he read, uh, watch, et cetera? And I, and I confidently was like, oh, definitely. I'll definitely send you some recommendations. And then... I thought back to what I did then. I was like, you were like the dog that rolls around in other things to try to like put the scent on the fur. Like, there was, and I was like, uh, uh, no, I can't recommend that. Uh, mm, no. And then I was like, what do I tell him? Like, you know, uh, penthouse letters, uh, Gordon Merrick novels, um, you know, uh, GQ magazine underwear ads um, in the in the eighties, <laughs> you know, like I was just sort of like, I think he'll be okay, but I don't want to guarantee it. But you know, like when I think when I think back to the totems I had and, and the way that I found my way through them, 
I was always handling stuff that that people would have been like, put that down. What the hell is going on? You know, and like, and I and I got through. Um, so I don't know if I'm. Yeah, it's something that I'm trying to think about now. It's like, what would it mean to have a positive role model, and and would it help? Um, I don't know. Um, anytime you put out a gay book, one of the questions people start to ask you is like, when was the first time you saw seen by literature? Um, which is always an interesting question for me because, you know, growing up in more or less isolation, not just from gay stuff, but from human beings in general in super rural Oklahoma, I just had my little, um, middle school library. And there was this book called Door into Ocean. And it was about this planet of lesbian catfish people who were trying to develop biotechnology to wipe out this like these invaders this like this race of invading men who had all this like high power technology and it was just the lesbian catfish trying to fight the technologically advanced men and anyway i always give that answer <laughs> when someone asks me like when did you first feel seen by literature because to me it's like you can build you can bake as much intent into your work as you want and hoping that it will reach a certain person but the way literature and you know things like literature actually reach people is so organic and chaotic and strange and i'm sure that whoever wrote that book wasn't thinking like this will reach some mestizo homosexual in rural oklahoma in between harvest days <laughs> you know what i mean it's just like it just happened to find me um so for me it's like role models are always accidental and the lighthouses are always stumbled upon and it's never really so simple as like, oh, this person is prominent and gay at the same time you were a child. Take a look. What do you think? Because um, for me, it's just like, I don't I don't know. Maybe it had nothing to do with me. Um, it, it's definitely troubled my relationship in a good way to like trying to find yourself in other people's work because that can be a dangerous activity sometimes, constantly looking for yourself in other things. Um, sometimes that gets in the way, I would say. I feel like I was never looking to see myself, but I was looking to see other queer people having their own very specific selves, mm. just to know that my specific self was a lot. Like for me as a teen, finding um, Owen Pallett's music um, was he went back when he was um, Final Fantasy. And I was like, this is a very weird gay nerd who is thriving in his own very specific way. And that made me feel like, okay, you can go be a gay nerd and it'll be fine. And, you know, for me, it, it's, it's often music and mm. it's, it's not literature. It's not other forms of, it's, it's music because I'm always listening to music. And just to hear like a, a warbly sort of wispy, uh, like witch of a gay person with a violin just did it for me. I was like, you know what? This person's allowed to exist. I'm going to be fine. Final Fantasy set a lot of us free at young ages <laughs> for me as well. Final Fantasy VII was the first game I ever played. Uh, what was the character that you played? Um, I, you know, wanted Aerith in my team because she was pretty and a healer and, you know, same. But, um, spoiler alert, that's not a great idea. <laughs> Something horrible happens. Um, you know, that's... That's just what video games are for a lot of gay kids, I think. For me still, I'm just like, oh, I want to be the pretty girl with uh, lasers and rocket boots to this day. You know, still want to do that. 
It's interesting. And she is. And she is. <laughs> and she is. I did stuff like that with D&D, um, where for some reason all of my characters were beautiful women. <laughs> just happened. And I drew them just so that everyone would know. <laughs> <laughs> Make no mistake. This is what she looks like. This is what she looks like. <laughs> Mitchell, do you have a point of reference for someone or, or some form of representation that, that you did have um, or someone more current that you wish you had then? I feel like television was really big for me growing up. Um, I wish I could say it was books because that would sound so much smarter. But I feel like Queer as Folk was like, for me, the like only gay television show that existed when I was in middle school. And I remember torrenting episodes on Napster and watching it really late at night. Um, and I don't know, I think I think what John Paul said about um, the danger of looking for yourself in certain forms of representation um, is very true in that case because as much as that show was super informative and eye-opening, it was also, I think in some ways set me up to fail because it made it seem like there was, um, you know, as much as there were characters that had distinct personalities, they all kind of fit within a certain mode. And that mode was white and kind of circuit centric. Um, and so, I don't know, for a long time, I thought that that was really the only way in which I could operate. I think there was like, one Asian character on the show who was like a sex worker who appears like for a few episodes. He was Japanese too. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. But other than that, you know, it's just like trying to fit yourself into a shape that you can't. I feel like we could do a whole sidebar here about Bretman Rock, who oh. you were an early adopter of Bretman Rock. Mitchell was like day one, Bretman Rock, ground floor, and later profiled him. Um, but I'd like to pivot from, from being young to um, what's one of the more gratifying experiences of your adult gay life? And, and what's been one of the harder ones, if you're comfortable sharing uh, both sides of the question? Um, I guess mine are kind of intimately linked together because I would say the proudest I've been, the most gratifying is, I guess, just the book that I put out. Um, just because, you know, that was always the goal for me ever since I can remember, I wanted to write a book. Um, and one of the more difficult ones recently is just the, um, it, it's gonna sound very harsh, but the sort of hiding of that book from my abuelo, uh, who grew up in a very, very small town um, in a very segregated Texas. And just the sort of nudge, nudge, he doesn't need to know about this kind of response that both me and my family have sort of adopted with him. Because not only, it isn't even so much that he is from a different time, so to speak, but he's from a very different world. Uh, we quite literally speak different languages. And just to have something like that pop up later in my life when it feels like so many other things have been solved for me, you know, uh, me living in such a gay environment with all my queer friends and we, we take for granted all the little things we do every day. We don't think of them as like, oh, let's do our queer little activities today. It's just how we live our lives. Um, I forgot <laughs> that I am a part of a family, um, that I come from somewhere, that there are aspects of my life where 
my identity hasn't been sorted out, so to speak, because, you know, my abuelo, I'm very proud of me in many ways when I wrote about uh, Mexican food for the Washington Post and referenced uh, the restaurant, the Mexican restaurant that my family used to run in Wichita Falls. He was very proud of it. He had a picture with it. Um, my mom took a picture of him holding it up. And it was this really proud moment because he always wanted to be a writer, uh, but couldn't. And it wasn't really on the table for him. And just that reminder of like, oh, right. Um, not everything has been squared away <laughs> has been a really, really interesting and difficult valley to cross for me. JP, I, I appreciate you sharing that about your family experience, because I do think that it's more common than we realize. And people are often afraid to share that. Um, my family is similarly very compartmentalized and it's really cost me my relationship with my grandparents. And so when my grandfather died at that point, I was like so far removed from him. And uh, I still have a, I still have a grandma on that side of the family mm. and she doesn't really know anything about me and I don't know what to talk to her about. And so out of respect for my family's religious beliefs, I really sort of hang back and the cost is becoming more and more clear as people die. And that's so sad mm. because here I am like thriving in a queer life. Um, and I have so many family members who it's sort of either implied or stated that I shouldn't talk to you about my life. And then the thing about hiding your book. Yeah. It's like family members Google you. Yeah. Um, and then they want to talk to well, you. Like my abuelos like still can't operate technology of any kind. So in that regard, I'm pretty safe, but it's interesting too, because, you know, in Mexican American culture, um, especially my abuelos who come from like, you know, their parents were born in Mexico and a common sentiment among Mexican Americans is this idea of coming from poverty and making it in life and being successful and having the opportunities that your ancestors didn't have, et cetera. And it's like the good American, we come from somewhere else, we're immigrants narrative. And it's what my abuelo really wanted for me. And he's not going to, I guess, get that from us because I can't share this huge accomplishment with him. And it's, it's definitely making me rethink, you know, my goals, not just as a queer person, but as a Chicano person and figuring out like, well, what is keeping me from trying to approach him with this subject? Um, it's it's definitely a hurdle. It's an interesting one. And yeah, uh, I guess I'll just have to see how it all plays out. It's one of those scenarios where time heals quite a lot. And I've been surprised at family members who have sort of appeared out of nowhere to be like, yeah, no, I know your life and it's fine. Mm. But like recently at a family wedding, um, it had sort of been implied that I shouldn't bring Mitchell. And so Mitchell stayed, Mitchell was in the city and stayed in the hotel. And then I had cousins who were like, oh, where's your husband? Mm. And I was like, oh, I, I thought he wasn't supposed to be here because, you know, we're Orthodox Jews and he's going to stand out. And I never want Mitchell to be in a scenario like that where everyone's like, who is this long haired, you know, Asian man at an all white orthodox wedding um it's very odd and so now my approach is sort of like okay if you google me that's on you mm. and if you talk to me about it that's fine and i just i can no longer bury those things yeah. um but yeah it's it's so sad to just know that people are are gonna pass um alex and mitchell i want to ask you the same question um what's been one of the more gratifying experiences in your adult gay life? Um, and then conversely, if you're comfortable, what's been one of the harder experiences uh, of your adult 
gay, queer life? I feel like this kind of stands in contrast to what we just talked about, but I think one of the more gratifying experiences for me has been moving home, which happened in October after being away for the better part of 14 years. And I left Hawaii in large part because I felt like I couldn't really be gay here. I mean, I know I, I knew I could, I just didn't think that I could be the kind of gay person that I wanted to be or that I deserved to be. And so I left and I, I swore off, um, not my ties here, but just, you know, identifying with Hawaii in a lot of ways um, in favor of being gay. Um, and so coming back has been really interesting in a sense that I'm realizing how much of that stuff has sort of been in my own head. And a lot of that is family stuff too. Just none of this was really like explicitly told to me. I just kind of like inferred it. And um, I don't know, out of that inferring, there was, a, there was like a lot of um, just negative associations with this place that it turns out was fine. Like I'm here and it feels good. And I, it's, we, Adam and I were living with my parents for nine months. And we're just being our gay selves around the house. Like, it was very strange to be walking around in, like, crop tops and just talking about gay shit with my parents. Um, so that's been really nice. I would say one of the harder things about gay adulthood for me, I think finding community is really hard. I think part of, like, what queerest folk and those other narratives tell you often is that gay community just happens by virtue of being gay or by going out to a nightclub, you have friends suddenly. And the reality for me anyway, was very different. It took a long time to really find my people. And it takes, it is kind of like drag too, I think in some ways, um, or like finding your voice in a lot of ways where you kind of try on different identities in your early twenties and you hang out with different people and you do different things and you kind of, you know, see what works and doesn't work. And it takes a while to find those people. And I think um, I'm currently kind of sad about leaving that. and. Um, that sort of transition of like trying to find it here, which obviously is going to be very different. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I guess those are kind of related as well. It's so interesting how I was thinking about like the, the you know, the coming out process is kind of, has come under this kind of scrutiny that I think is interesting and in the last decade, especially, you know, the question of like, is it necessary? Do you need to? Is coming out even like a, um, a useful practice? Um, I, for example, did not come out to my Korean family until, uh, until I published a book and was doing Korean media. And then I was like, I, oh, I really don't want them to find out that way. That's not what I want. I don't want them to like get a a paper and see my face in the in the book. Um, and I had gone my I put my sister through something. It's not even the hardest thing that I went through. Where she she was at a bookstore in Washington D.C. with one of my uncles who was visiting from Seoul, and she walked in and there was a big stack of my books at the front of the store, <laughs> and she then had to like kind of guide him around the store for whatever it was he was looking for without letting him, it was really like a, like an episode of a sitcom 
Um, and then I was like, this is too much for me to ask my sister to do, like to hide my life this way. So he was the first of them that I came out to. And, you know, that wasn't, it was difficult, but I think what I understood afterwards was that it would have been harder if I had not done it because, because then he would not have known anything about me and he could never have been proud of me in the way that he eventually became. And, and that meant the world to me. You know, of course it is like, I was laughing afterwards, like it is such a Korean coming out to be like, here is my book. It has gotten great reviews. <laughs> I am now an author. I am not just a homosexual, but I am an author. Um, and, uh, you know, the I have gotten these jobs at these uh, schools that you admire through the publication of this book. And, you know, uh, I'm at the same time, like, it, it also just meant a lot, too. I mean, there were some unexpected awkwardnesses, like, you know, him holding up a picture abruptly of my nieces and nephews and saying, don't you want one of these, some of these? And I was like, I can still have kids, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, that wasn't, in retrospect, I think at the time it seemed really hard and now it doesn't really seem so hard. But maybe it's because it did work out, you know, that like the mind rewrites the difficulty. Um, Probably, my husband and I got married at the beginning of the, just before the Trump administration took office, one seven seventeen. We did it because we didn't want the right to be taken away from us before we could. And we didn't want to get married during the Trump administration. All these people were like, it's January, don't you want to, like, what about June? And I was like, you're not seeing the point here um and i think what was hard was trying to get my family to understand the precarity that was already underway much less what would come um and understanding that they they thought we were kind of overreacting by trying to do it then and and it was, you know, we made it into a uh, a beautiful event. Um, it was a small wedding, twenty uh, some family and friends. Uh, we put his family and my family in the same um, in the same rental house, so it was like a sitcom, like combining your your a reality show sitcom. Um, but it was also, it was just really great to see them connect with each other and and not really need us to intervene in any way once we introduced them all. Like, just kind of took off and it was like, oh, well, of course, like, the ways that we get along come from these people. Was that the first time they had met? Yeah. Wow. Because, you know, they're in Wisconsin, like, his family's in Wisconsin, mine is in Maine, and, you know, they, they, they write to each other now, and it's, uh, Dustin's mom makes these incredible 
Christmas cookies that she sends over to my mother's house and I'll go there now and I get to watch my mother's process of like eating one cookie gradually so that like the box of cookies lasts for like three months. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not really how it's supposed to go, but whatever. That's that's her thing. And that I guess in a way, like the I guess what I'm trying to say is the good stuff and the hard stuff are all seem always like they're connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel exactly that. Like definitely for me, the most gratifying experience is meeting Mitchell and, and building a life together and getting married and now moving to his hometown and living with his family. And it's really cool being a part of a family that is just so cool with you in every capacity and so proud of you. And it's just not a big deal. Um, and there is sort of this, you know, I, I didn't think I would share this, but, but you speaking about, you know, your respective families meeting each other. My parents have never met Mitchell's parents and I don't know if and when that will happen, but it would mean a lot to me for them to want to and for them to make that effort um, because the Kuga family has accepted me so fully, so wholeheartedly. Um, And there is a part of me that's like, you know, certain relationships with older family members I, I have missed out on. And I don't want us to miss out on this just because it doesn't mesh with what we thought was going to be or what, what you thought my life was going to be, you know, it's like at the point that I got kicked out of yeshiva, I think we should have known that I wasn't going to be a rabbi anymore. You know, at a certain point, it's like, like what, what benchmark are we waiting for until the point where we can just say, okay, actually life is surprising. I'm going to, I'm going to have to rethink, you know, we're not going to get back on the train at a later stop, I don't think. Um, on the other hand, you know, to go from from a young person who thought like, hey, maybe I shouldn't even be alive to, you know, now just building my dream life with my gay husband. You know, I'm never so grateful as when I'm cooking bacon for my gay husband. <laughs> like as an Orthodox Jewish person, that feel, or like spam. I'm making spam with be and I'm like, how the fuck did I get here? This is, this is just smushed pork in a can. This is the least kosher thing I can imagine. And, you know, I'm going to go make it for my husband and then kiss him on the mouth. Um, Could you date someone whose art you don't like? Who, me? Anyone. All of you. (laughs) Um, Mitchell, I'd love to know the answer to this question. In an ideal situation, my husband does not make art. (laughs) So... Yes, that is the correct answer, actually. That's the correct answer, yes. We'll see. Can I separate the art from the artist? Wow. Ooh. <laughs> How do you mean date? <laughs> um, you know, as a teacher, I guess the thing that I, I've discovered is how long a person's process can be and where they are at uh, in different places. Um, but, you know, I... I'm lucky in that my husband is really talented. Um, so I, uh, so I, you know, and art is a big part of our, our art is a big part of our conversation. And he's one of my readers. Uh, and I, I really value 
what he has to say about my work, but it's, and that's not always good for people and it's not always the case, you know, but when it is, it's, um, it's wonderful. I think you cannot like something, but still respect it. And I think respecting it is part of paying attention to what Alex has said about the process, right? Like people are growing, the thing's changing, but <laughs> um, I don't think I, I don't think I could date someone if I didn't respect their <laughs> art. I mean, for, for me, something that I find so attractive in a person is passion, creative passion in any capacity. And so for me, I think I don't need to like your art, but for you to have zero interest in any creative pursuit at all, you know, from very literal traditional visual art to like just loving to pull a look or any, you know what I mean? Like I need there to be some because that's how I know that you're alive. And I think Mitchell and I are definitely both artists and in very different ways. And there's not a lot of overlap, but together it, it makes for, you know, a, a home that, that is full of that energy and spirit that I need to just like be happy. Um, and then there is that learning curve of learning how to ask each other for advice or to be each other's readers or, and, and we, <laughs> that's also been something to work through. Um, Okay, let's let's talk about the the sex part. Um, just briefly, there's this one. Okay, so there's that John Waters quote that's always taken out of context, where he says, "If you go home with somebody, they don't have books, don't them." Um, and he continues and says, "You should encourage them to explore the secret universes of books before they explore you." Um, and then a couple of years ago, he was like, "Yeah, that's not really true at all if they're cute enough." Um, which I love. That's a very John Waters uh, addendum to make. But I'm wondering, is there, if you go home with someone, is there a book on their shelf that's like worse than if they had no books? I mean, it's a cliche right now, but, you know, Ayn Rand is a <laughs> that, uh, red flag. Um, American Dirt? Yeah. I don't know. That is one, actually. What if they have your book? Oh. Ooh. Um, I feel like enemy Pokemon music just starts playing if I see my book. It's just like <laughs> <laughs> alert. Okay. Uh, my last question. Is there anything that you'd like to ask anyone else here that you've never been able to ask them before or just there hasn't been the right opportunity for it? Uh, I really want to know, JP, what you're going to write next. <laughs> and also, are you thinking about fiction? Yes. My second book is looking like it will be fiction. Um, I am trying to write this book that is loosely kind of based on this one summer I had um, right after I came out where I'm kind of stuck back in rural Oklahoma and me and my one gay friend are going to go to this gay house party in this tiny Oklahoma town um, where I happen to meet someone who I have a really intense summer relationship with. Um, and so it's loosely based on that, but I just kind of wanted to do... I mean, the challenge I said to myself was, could you write a whole novel about one of the most drab 
ostensibly boring summers of your life where a lot of stuff is kind of happening but also nothing's happening um and i have like twenty thousand words in it right now and i have my trusty editor looking at it um i've been writing it for like a few months now and he's just now looking at it and i'm waiting with bated breath to see if another human being thinks there's a book there um because if there isn't one then wow that's twenty thousand words <laughs> Um, it would be really uh, upsetting if there isn't one. But onward and upward and hoping for the best. Oh, that sounds great. I'm excited. <laughs> Thank you. Mitchell, Alex, the floor is yours. How do you define success? Because I feel like we've been taught to define it by certain metrics. And there's a lot of, um, you know, bestsellers lists and awards and accolades that we're taught to um, achieve. And I think that a lot of times those things end up being unsatisfactory in some ways. And so I guess I'm wondering how you define success and how that's changed um, over time. Royalties. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, get, I, I earn royalties on all my books and that has been an intensely gratifying experience of, of material success. Um, I think especially because of the way when I was first starting out, you know, the messages I was getting back were like, you know, you can't be like this, you can't write like this, you can't do this. Um, and and so to, to have that aspect of it uh, come in uh, every quarter, it just, that feels amazing. But I think, what else? I, I mean, I've had a, well, first of all, thank you for that description of me. Um, I appreciate it so much. Um, I, I, I mostly feel like someone who is just struggling to get through the day and remember everything uh, or even like half the things. Um, so I, I don't really experience myself that way. And the thing that I, I guess I would say is I define success probably as so there's a definition of happiness that I caught from uh, Hannah Arendt, which was the freedom to imagine that which you can't yet imagine as possible, which I think is a really beautiful way to think about a particular kind of freedom. And so I, I think having the, having the space in your life to begin moving past the limits of your imagination, that feels like real success to me. That's beautiful. I really can't think of a, a more perfect way to end this conversation. So I'd like to say thank you. Um, thank you all for, for your time and for sharing and just for everything that you do for existing. <laughs> Existence is hard and I, I'm grateful that you, that you do and that I get to sort of benefit peripherally from, from that work and self that you share. Um, I'm contractually obligated to ask this question, where can we find you online? <laughs> if if we were to follow you on any platforms, uh, Chimobile on Instagram is, or Chimobile, however mm -hmm. you want to say it. Oh my god! I never once thought that. <laughs> I love it. I never either, actually. Chimobile, like stop. It, it was a car. I had a car that I called the Chimobile, and and then that became my Instagram. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, I am at JP Bramer everywhere. J-P-B-R-A-M-M-E-R. And I'm at Mitchell Kuga. And I'm also at Mitchell Kuga. <laughs> Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'm Adam JK on all platforms. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to You Are Here For Now, the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And pick up a copy of my book, You Are Here For Now, for yourself or someone you love at your favorite bookstore or adamjk.com. Until next time, be kind to yourself and remember, you are here, but you're not alone.